Welcome to the Feathered Desert, a podcast all about desert bird feeding in the southwestern region of the United States. everyone to our first podcast of the Feather Desert. We are excited to have you listening today. I am Kirsten, who is one of the co-hosts, and we also have Cheryl, another one. There you go. (laughs) And we are starting a podcast all about desert bird feeding because we both have been bird feeding in the desert for several years now, and we realize that bird feeding in the desert is a little bit different than other areas. We both grew up outside of desert areas. I grew up in Texas and Cheryl grew up... I grew up in California. So we both grew up outside of the desert. And when we came here to live, we realized that the way we were bird feeding in other states wasn't necessarily the way it works in the desert. So we wanted to do that and let you guys know what we have learned here and some tips and tricks to attract the kinds of birds to your yard that you might want here in the desert. Yes. Do you want to get out the right information um, about bird feeding in the Southwest? Because it's a little tricky. And like Kirsten said, we've learned some tips and tricks. And we want to do it in a fun and enjoyable environment to encourage you to um, enjoy the birds in your backyard. Exactly. We want to encourage people to understand that there are some really amazing birds here in the desert. Some things that are so beautiful you don't want to miss them. And we want to let you know how to attract them. course there's always those nuisance birds like mm, aka the rock pigeon not everybody wants to have those guys in their yard either and we have some ways to do that so we're going to talk about that on our podcast and today we're starting with everyone's favorite bird or at least everyone I have ever met in my life has never disliked this bird the hummingbird we're going to talk all about them and how it's different in the southwest and I have a cute little story to start us off here talking about hummingbirds I actually grew up in Texas and when we um, were ready for our hummingbirds in the springtime and we were so excited because they were going to come and my mom and I would get our hummingbird feeders ready and we put them out and we would wait and wait and wait but we couldn't see them until the beginning of spring while they were migrating through and then we would have those that would stay all summer long and then when summer left we were sad because the hummingbirds left but here in the southwest desert regions of the United States we are so lucky that we have hummingbirds all year and we don't have all the hummingbirds here, um, which is something interesting as well. We do have different species of hummingbirds in the Southwest, as opposed to other areas of the United States, which only have one. But we're lucky with that. And um, what kind of birds uh, or hummingbirds actually do we have here that stay with us all year round? Well, year round, we have two, uh, generally, as the Anna's hummingbird, uh, Kirsten, and the black chin. The Anna, most everyone recognizes the Anna. It's uh, the male is uh, short and stocky. They're larger. They're um, about four to five and a quarter inches in in length. Their wingspan's about uh, five inches. So they're a large, um, larger hummingbird. He's got a rosy head and a stocky green body and a short bill. And the female has um, little fl- red flecks on her throat. Um, the Annas not only enjoy nectar, but they eat spiders, small spiders. They'll pluck um, insects out of spider webs. They eat small flying insects, and they enjoy tree sap. Now, one distinction that the male 
Anna has in uh, North America, he is the champion of singing. He is the one who has the most distinct song, sings the longest, and enjoys putting his um, vocal cords to use. And the other one is the black chin. Now the black chin is a little smaller than the Anna, a little more streamlined, has a flat forehead um, in comparison to the, the Anna, has uh, a black head with a velvet, the male has a black head with a velvet band around it, uh, around the base of its uh, chin and throat. And the female is rather dull, metallic green with a grayish underside. And this particular male, um, the black chin male uh, song is a little softer and not as distinctive as Diana's. Wow, gosh, that's amazing. So we also have, we're very lucky in the summertime, we get even more. I mean, we have two that stay with us year round, which is super fun, but we have some more that come during the summer. So in addition, we will have our Annas and our black chin during the summer, but we have two more that will join us and um, coming up from South America and Mexico, and they'll stay with us all summer long. And one of the ones that is very brightly colored is our Costa. And Costa is one of the smallest ones that we have here actually in the United States. And they are about uh, three and a half inches. And they have a very interesting gorget. And the gorget, we'll use that, let you guys know a little scientific term there, is what the feathers on the throat of the male are called. And most of them are a bright color, like uh, Cheryl was talking about with the Annas and the black chin, they have bright colors there. Well, the Costa actually has a gorget that comes all the way down under the chin and then over actually the top of the head mimics the same color. And their purple feathers actually project back past the neck. And so it kind of looks like he's wearing a little bit of a bow tie when they're all flat down. And then when he is interested in possibly getting a girlfriend, he will actually take those feathers and he's able to poke them up, like display, display them out a little bit and all around his head. And if you look at him straight um, down the eye there, he looks almost like a cartoon version of an octopus. Yep. A little bit like I think Cheryl said SpongeBob yep. the other day when we were talking <laughs> about that. <laughs> so the Costa male and female will both have a green body and um, the male will be very distinctive with those purple gorget feathers and the female will be gray on her lower body. She will not have any color of gorget feathers at all and um, her flight feathers on her wings are interesting because she sits at rest. Um, her flight feathers will actually project past her tail feathers. So they have very long flight feathers. And that's a good way if you're looking at your feeder and you notice that, then you're probably looking at a female costa. So our other um, visitor in summertime that will be with us is the broadtail. And the broadtail hummingbird has a very distinctive sound that they make. And um, you can hear them coming. Yes, you can hear them coming. It's almost like little jingle bells. And you're like, what is that noise? And it's a broadtail hummingbird coming towards you. The males will be green on their back and um, they have slightly orange little flanks on the side and they have a nice bright red gorget. And theirs will not um, flare off to the side at all. It'll be um, flush up against their throat. And to differentiate them a little bit from some of our other ones that have red gorget feathers, they have a big white line 
it's a pretty thick distinct white line that goes from their eye ring to straight to their throat um, in flight as we were saying the male actually makes a jingling sound and sometimes people will be like what is that weird noise is that a bug yeah. is that a beetle but it's not it's a little hummingbird these guys are a bit bigger than our costa um, they're about four inches so they're one of uh, they're pushing on one of our largest hummingbirds here in uh, the united states that we see and the females will also have the green body just like the males and they will have a little bit of that rufous red color on their flanks um, not very much at all and uh, they will have gray on their throat and their uh, belly and they have a very long tail so if you look and you see slightly rufous colored flanks and um, when they're sitting at the hummingbird feeder and the tail sticks out past the flight feathers then you may very well be looking at a broad tail all right so those are our, our summer visitors we have night four of them to look for and we are also lucky to be in the flight path for some of our migrants because a lot of hummingbirds will actually go all the way up to canada and alaska area and then they fly back through us to go down to mexico and south america where they overwinter so we are lucky enough to have three here that are the, the three that we most often see anyways. We do have other migrants, but we're gonna talk about three. One of them is our Rufus, and that one is one of the most interesting hummingbirds I think I've ever seen. They are um, about 3.75 inches tall, so they're a larger one as well, and they're this nice kind of sunset orange color. So most people see hummingbirds and they think, oh, it's a green hummingbird. That's what you see in paintings and depictions and mostly pictures and stuff. But this guy is not that color. He has a nice rufous color. That's why he's called the rufous hummingbird. So a nice orange sunset color. He does have green accents. The males will. They will be mostly a nice pretty orange uh, with a little bit of green accent, usually on the top of their wings, kind of like little green epaulets and uh, they will also have a red gorget, the males will. The females will be a little bit more green. They will still have the orange flanks, um, similar to, well, actually just like the Rufus males, um, but they will not have the gorget feathers and they will be more of a buff color on their underside. And these guys also will make a trill when they fly, but it's a slightly more higher pitch than the broad tail. So it's kind of like Jingle Bells on helium, these guys are. <laughs> yeah. And, and duck. Yes, and duck. Duck when you hear it. <laughs> exactly. These guys have no problems with dive bombing you. No. <laughs> um, so then when you're out there looking again, if you see that kind of orangey guy, um, you have another possibility, though. We have two that actually migrate through that look similar. Uh, the Allen's hummingbird is one that also migrate through. This is also one that they have uh, found in recent years is living year-round in California. So those of you, if you're listening in California, you might be very familiar with this guy. He looks a lot like the Rufus, and it's actually very hard to tell them apart, if, um, especially if you're not familiar with looking at them. Sometimes the Allens will have a little bit more green on their back than the Rufus does, but don't be fooled. Sometimes the Rufus can also have a green back as well. It is very hard to tell them apart, um, but if you can guess it's one of those two, you're doing really well. Because uh, <laughs> sometimes even ornithologists can't tell the difference between them until they actually have them in their hand. And so either way, the Rufus and the Allens are both that pretty orange color, and if you see either one of them during migration, you are lucky. 
So we have one other guy that comes through here and gal, sorry, gals, boys and girls actually both migrate. Um, and this one is our smallest hummingbird in the United States at three inches and 25, or three inches and 25 centimeters. And that's the calliope. Absolutely love that name, the calliope hummingbird. They also have the green back and a green head. And the male will have a long streaky purple gorget. So it won't be a solid color like many of the other ones. These will be streaky feathers. So it's very distinctive, easily to tell. And they have a heavy white streak across their cheek. And that is an easy way to tell these guys apart from the other ones that fly through. And the female um, will also have that green back and head, but she will be buff colored on the belly and she doesn't have any kind of coloring on her uh, throat at all. All right, so that is talking about our summer migrants. Our, sorry, yes, our summer migrants actually mm -hmm. do come through during the spring and the summer. And after that, I don't know about you, but I want to know, how do we attract these hummingbirds to our yards? Yes, well, I always say native plants are the best way to attract hummingbirds, really. Uh, hummingbirds will always go to a flower over feeder. Um, so that's a, a good way to start is looking at what's in your backyard because also placement of the, the feeder is important. So put it where they're already visiting blossoms. But to um, a question we get a lot is what kind of feeder um, works in the backyard? And the first thing is you have to consider the person who's going to uh, be observing the hummingbirds and enjoying it and maintaining it. Because the hummingbirds aren't going to, um, they're going to expect you to clean and provide nectar for their feeder. That is your job once you hang it up there. So you want to pick a feeder that you're going, you as the individual is going to um, clean. <clears throat> you're going to want to clean it necessarily it's going to be easy for you to maintain and clean and it's not going to be wasteful with the um, nectar that you're providing for the hummingbirds so first thing is um, easy to clean and refill the second thing you want to uh, consider is possibly providing a perch um, so and uh, more than one um, port or opening so that the more than one hummingbird can visit the feeder at the um, same time because that does happen um, it might be rare in certain times of the year, but it does happen. And so you could get two visiting your feeder if you had a perch and more than one way for the hummingbird to get nectar. And the third thing would be a feeder that does not encourage uh, pesky visitors such as bees or ants, flies and things like that that can get into your, your feeders. So the best all around feeder I think that I have in my yard is their saucer feeders and um, so the nectar is kept at the bottom. I can measure it out so I can put in more or less. And I can also, if it's a clear bottom, I can see the hummingbird actually getting the nectar out. I can actually watch its tongue go down to the bottom and um, get some of the sugar water that's in it. Um, and generally red is the premier color that uh, for hummingbird feeders that hummingbirds uh, will be attracted to. Um, and it has a nice uh, long hook so that it um, has an ex so there's room from where you're hanging it down so the hummingbird has a clear flight. That all sounds great. Now there was something I read just the other day that said um, bees are attracted to the color yellow. 
So what about those hummingbird feeders with yellow? Would that cause a problem and attract bees and flies and stuff or? Yes. Okay, yes. so we if we avoid, avoid some of those. Avoid yellow. Okay, that's a very good tip because I did just have somebody ask me that the other day and it turns out they had yellow on their feeder and when they switched it out to a red one, they didn't have any more bee problems. So now that we have an idea of what kind of feeder we want, and um, also hopefully in the back of our minds, we're thinking about what kind of plants we might want to plant, which we are going to talk a little bit about later. We want to know what kind of nectar to put in that hummingbird feeder. Because we want to give them the stuff that is going to keep them healthy and of course keep them coming back. So we want to, if we're going to make our own at home, we want to use plain white sugar and this is, um, a lot of people know it as table sugar. It's what you used to have on the table and you'd scoop and put into your tea and your coffee. And none of this organic stuff. We have a big movement for organic for human beings, which is great, that's super healthy for us, but organic sugar still has the molasses in it that refined white sugar does not have. So you wanna go with that stuff, uh, that white stuff that Every nutritionist tells you, don't put it in the human body. It's not good for you. For hummingbirds, it's the best we can give them because it most closely matches the nectar that they would find in flowers. And it does not have that molasses. If you give a hummingbird any kind of sugar with molasses in it, it will stick inside their crop and it will eventually kill them. So we want to stick with that white table sugar. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna do four parts water and one part sugar. And those of you who are great at math, you can divide that up however you like. <laughs> I go the easy way and use four cups of water and one cup of sugar. And I do the old fashioned way where I do heat up the water. You don't wanna boil the water, but heat it up to just before boiling and then put the sugar in so it will dissolve nice and quick. That also does help keep the sugar water better or it, it helps to keep fungus and stuff from growing in it when you want to keep it in your refrigerator. So keeping it just before boiling, put in the water, take it off the heat, then stir it with the spoon, let that cool. And I have a nice little four cup container that I keep it in, a nice bright one that says hummingbird food so that none of my friends accidentally drink it, which has happened in the past. Yes. And <laughs> nobody wants to drink sugar water. It's not good. <laughs> Unless you're a hummingbird, you don't want to drink it. So I do keep that in there and I just use a little bit at a time. I fill up my hummingbird. I do have a nice little saucer feeder or tray feeder like Cheryl was talking about. That one works best for me. And I'm able to keep my nectar in the refrigerator for up to two weeks. Um, if it gets past that, then I go ahead and dump it out and I make a new one. Another thing you can do also is buy store-bought nectar. And here at the WBU store in Mesa, we actually do carry some. And what you want to look for is the ingredients in there is that it's sucrose only. You don't want a bunch of other different types of minerals in there. And some of them will say, uh, these minerals will help them. You should try this. This is very good for them. But honestly, we just don't really know how much minerals hummingbirds need. What exactly are they getting from that nectar that they do need? So we don't want anything with additional minerals in it. No copper or potassium or anything like that because we just don't know if that's really helping them or not and so going with an ingredient that is purely sucrose is the best way to go and one last thing about that for all you old school hummingbird feeders out there who've been doing this for the last 30 years or so 
they used to tell you to put red dye in that hummingbird nectar because it will attract them to the feeder. Well, we don't want to do that. The red dye is actually very bad for them and there have been many studies that show that it actually will start to shut down their system. They have to process their food so fast, and they're processing so much, they're eating so much a day that that red dye will actually build up in their system, shut down their kidneys, and we certainly do not want to harm our little hummingbirds. So one of the best things to do for that, if you like to do that old school red stuff, is actually get a red feeder. And that is the best way to attract them there. All right, so we've got some nectar and we've got our hummingbird feeder. And what else do we need to know about bringing these guys into our lives? Well, keeping our feeders clean, Kirsten, it's very important because you want your feeder clean and your nectar fresh to keep your hummingbirds healthy and returning to your feeder. Now, they might come once to a dirty, um, unclean feeder, but they're not going to come twice. So you, the whole idea is repeat business, right? So um, bad nectar and dirty feeders can actually, as Kirsten mentioned, can actually make your hummingbirds sick. And if they get sick, no one returns again to a restaurant if they've gotten food poisoning, correct? Well, the hummingbird is the same way. He's not going to come to your feeder. And rancid nectar or mold on your feeder can gives the hummingbirds um, a bacterial infection that causes their tongues to swell and that eventually kills them. And not only that, but this bacterial infection can be transferred to their the little baby hummingbirds that the moms are feeding. So it's really important that we keep in that we keep them clean. And the best way to do that is to take your feeder down. Obviously, when you change out the nectar to refill it, you just use a mild uh, soap and warm water, um, wash it, uh, dry it, and then hang it back up. And then maybe once a month, you might wanna uh, dip it in a vinegar uh, solution. Um, I don't like to use bleach, although you could use a, a bleaching solution. Um, uh, vinegar and uh, just let it air dry and then go ahead and put it back up there. That's great. Now I use like seventh generation type soaps yes. and those organic so ones on my dishes, would plant, that be okay? A plant-based um, soap, something that um, breaks down and doesn't leave a residue. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. And those little ports you were talking about, those are pretty tiny. Is there anything that I can use to get down in those little tiny ports? Yes, well, we actually sell little port brushes and that's very important because the back of the hummingbird uh, bird ports, especially on um, on some feeders, that's where the mold grows. Okay. So if I see little black spots next to my yeah. ports, yes. I definitely need yes. to be cleaning that off. Yes. All right. Great. Now we are all set and ready. We've got a feeder. We've got our nectar. We've got our cleaning regimen ready. So now here in the Southwest, we can put this out any time of the year, right? Yes. Year round. Yes. 24-7. Awesome. Yes. I'm so excited. So earlier we were talking about um, plants. You mentioned that, that plants are one of the best ways to attract hummingbirds. Yes. All right. So here on our Feathered Desert podcast, we actually want to do a segment at the end of every podcast called our Plant Spotlight. And Cheryl is going to pick our plant of the week. And she's going to tell us all about which plant she picked for our Plant Spotlight. Well, uh, Kirsten, this morning I picked the chuparosa. 
And the reason I picked the Chuparosa is because if the Anna or the Black Chin hunting, Hummingbird could vote on the plant that they want in your backyard more than any other uh, desert plant, this is the plant that they would vote for. Chuparosa actually means, in Spanish, it is the word for hummingbird. The Chuparosa is a long-suffering uh, desert beauty that um, gives a lot and asks for very little. It blooms almost all year round in a uh, bright red clustered tube-shaped um, blossoms. Um, it's tolerant of poor soils. It grows well in a pot or up against your block wall. Um, it has tolerant of drought conditions and can handle the blazing sun. And I planted mine last year in August in 117 degrees. And it has already um, doubled in, I would say tripled in size. It's That's about a tough two plant. feet by two feet. So it, um, yeah, it, you don't, it doesn't need a lot of care once it's established, but don't ignore it. So it will need water at least once a month, which is generally what uh, most desert plants need. But it's a great plant to start out with if you want to change out or add some native um, plants to your yard. And it, my saying is, if you plant it, they will come. And it is very true with hummingbirds. They have found my chuparosa and I have black, black chin hummingbirds um, visiting my yard. I have to admit that too. I also planted the chuparosa first because it was just cool to say. Who doesn't want to say chuparosa? It's an amazing word. <laughs> yes, I and I did. I planted mine as well. I planted mine um, almost six months before you planted yours. And mine is also tripled in size. And I have mine in a very large pot in the front. So I have to water mine a little bit more than once a month just because it dries out yeah, a little bit too much out. and all that, that sun. Mine's right in the middle of the sun. Um, but I also, oh gosh, maybe a week after I planted it, it was blooming and I already had Anna's hummingbirds at it. And I was so excited to see them. Yes, and it's a plant that you can allow to spread out and be bushy. Or I actually have mine um, on a, a, I made a trellis. I built a trellis and I actually have mine growing up my block wall. Well, that is great. It sounds like a plant for everybody's yard out here in the southwest area. Well, that's it for our first podcast on hummingbirds. Thank you guys so much for yes, joining us you. in the feathered desert. And we hope to have you listening to us uh, next week. Yes. Bye, everyone. Yes. Bye-bye.